Thank you, Judy, for sharing about the WMU project. And that is a worthwhile project. It's something that we want to get behind here at the church. And thank you, Kay and Robin, for playing that music as we prepare for something really special right now, which is the moment where we come to the table. And we mix this up from time to time. We do this sometimes at the end of our service, but today we're doing it in the middle of our service. And let me just say before we begin, as uh, we come to the table, hopefully you picked up one of these little cups as you came in. If for some reason you didn't, they're still outside here, or you can get one in the back of the uh, vestibule as well. And we'll take this together. There's a little clear plastic piece on top that'll give you access to the bread and then underneath that there's a purple piece that you'll pull and that'll give you access to the liquid and again I'll walk us through all of this now in order to take communion we only ask that you are a professing believer in Christ who has been baptized in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit we don't ask that you're a member of Monument Heights in particular or a Baptist church in particular. We simply ask that you are a professing believer. And then we would welcome you and, in fact, invite you to join us in this very sacred practice that we have to do this morning. Before we go to the table, however, I want us to prepare our hearts through a prayer of preparation. I want us to pray together. Uh, I'll lead us in that prayer, but I want to lead us in a prayer of confession, uh, knowing that we have in ourselves no right to come to the table, but through Christ and through his merits, we come to the table not as enemies of God, but as friends of God because of what he has won for us. So let me lead us in prayer, and then we will take from the table together. Lord Jesus, we are so incredibly grateful that you ever live to make intercession for us. You are a perfect high priest, a perfect one-time sacrifice that does not need to be repeated or sacrificed again. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves once and for all. And you have taken your seat because your sacrifice your sacrificial offering is finished. And now as we come to the table, we recognize that in and of ourselves, we have no right to take from the elements of this table. That if we came on our own virtue or in our own righteousness, we would rightly be cast out from the feast. We would rightly be cast out and never welcomed back in. But because of you, because you died for our sins and because you rose again for our justification, we come to this table completely at peace with the living God. And as we take from this bread and as we drink from this cup, we recognize what you have won for us. And we pray that these elements would be a grace to us and that the gospel that we proclaim as we take together from these elements would be a grace to us. And pray that in this act that you've given us as your people, as your church, that our hearts would be stirred to love you and to rejoice in you more and more. And of course, we pray this name because of what you, we, we pray this prayer because of what you have done for us. And in your name, Jesus, amen. On the night when Jesus was to be betrayed, he gathered with his disciples and he explained to them 
that the entire Old Testament was culminating in what he was about to do, that he was about to give himself as a fulfillment of the law to establish God's new covenant, his new agreement with his new people through this act of sacrifice that Christ was going to do. And he gave bread to his disciples and he broke it and he said, take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same way, Scripture tells us that after having the bread, Jesus takes the one cup and he says, this cup represents the new covenant. The new covenant is this new reality, this new way of relating to God where the law of God is written on our heart. It's no longer external. And where God pours his spirit into our hearts so that we can be transformed from the inside out. And where all of our sins are forgiven on the basis of God's mercy and his grace. And he says this new covenant is possible by the liquid within the cup, which is my blood. And he says, take and drink, knowing that I have made this possible for you. And we're told that after the disciples do this act with Jesus, they sing a hymn. And we're going to do that now. Suzanne's coming to lead us because the only appropriate response is absolute praise for what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. I was having a conversation with a pastor friend this past week, and he shared with me something that I think most of us are sensing, and of course I've talked with a lot of pastors who are sensing this as well, but, but I think any of us are sensing this. And he said, my congregation is just struggling under the weight of the world right now. It just seems to be too much, and they're wondering where God is. They don't, they don't feel like they're seeing God anywhere in the world. And I had already been reflecting on the text for today, which are Psalms 9 and 10. We're covering two Psalms. And I shared with him, I think these Psalms give expression to that very feeling, that they capture this feeling that you're putting your finger on in your congregation, that I too sense when I'm talking to Christians or really anybody, is that these Psalms capture this idea that this world is being crushed under the weight of sin and brokenness and sorrow. And I, I don't want to sound overly dramatic. We sitting in this room, by and large, have incredible things to be grateful for. We have numerous things to be grateful for. 
But that doesn't negate the reality that many of us feel like we've been run over by an emotional semi-truck. Many of us feel like our spiritual lives are just sort of spinning out of control. Many of us feel like our inner person is frayed and frazzled. And, and we wake up and we don't feel like we got charged completely. Um, I had this experience last night where I woke up and my phone was on 30% and I had charged it all night. Well, that, the reason was I hadn't plugged it into the wall. But, but that, that's sort of the issue we all wake up with day by day. We wake up feeling like our battery is only at 30 or 40%. And that's when we first get up and, and the coffee only adds 5 or 10% and it begins draining right away. A few years ago, psychologist Larry Crabb wrote these words, and you should see them here. No one will conclude that God is good by studying life. So if you turn on the news, you probably aren't going to come to the conclusion that God is good. If you look around the world and look at what's going on right now, you probably aren't going to conclude that God is good. He says the evidence powerfully suggests otherwise. But belief in the goodness of God and the worship that naturally flows from this confidence depends on the revealing work of the Holy Spirit. So if we're just relying to look around the world and, and kind of be optimistic or peppy, it's probably not going to work for us. What we need is the revealing work of the Holy Spirit to say there is hope. Yes, things don't look good, but there is hope in spite of all appearances. Only the Holy Spirit's work of opening our eyes to see Jesus and to see what Jesus has done, to understand the value of what we just did at this table, to understand the importance of us sitting in this room together right now. Only the Holy Spirit's work of doing those things can bring us to a place of hoping against hope, hoping when everything else seems like there's no hope anywhere. In spite of the tragic brokenness of this world, there is hope. And our task is to show that from these two Psalms this morning. Now, you may be wondering as you're turning to Psalms 9 and 10, you may be wondering why I'm taking two Psalms. After all, we usually just do one at a time, and taking two Psalms requires 38 verses. And how in the world are we going to get through 38 verses? Remember, we can do this. I have done it. I've done multiple chapters. It just hasn't been done lately. But let me tell you why we've got two psalms this morning. The reason we have two psalms this morning is because they actually belong together. This is one of those places where our chapter divisions aren't actually helpful. Now remember, these chapter divisions come in much much later in church history. Uh, most chapter divisions are only about 500 years old at this point. So Christianity's roughly 2,000 years old. We're talking 1,500 years where Christians got by just fine without chapter and verse divisions. Now, that's simplifying matters, but that, that is kind of the general reality of how these chapters come about. But the fact is, these psalms belong together is, as one. The most obvious reason is because they form together a complete or almost complete acrostic poem. Now, you may not know what an acrostic poem is, but an acrostic poem is one in which it goes through the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet in this case, sequentially. So you start with Aleph in verse 1, and then in verse 3, the first word starts with Beit, which is the second letter of the alphabet and so on. In order to get to the end of the alphabet, 
you need Psalm 10 because Psalm 10 picks up with the middle of the alphabet with the Hebrew letter Lamed and ends with the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. So Psalms 9 and 10 are really one poem and they need to be read together. So just ignore the 10 and we'll just call it all one Psalm. All right, so that's why we're taking them together. So let's, let's jump into it. We do have some ground to cover. Let's begin in Psalm 9. We'll look at the first two verses. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And notice this is a psalm of David notated at the top there of, of chapter 9. And by the way, chapter 10 doesn't have one of those headings, which is another reason we would take them together. So David here in these first two verses, you can see, starts with praise. Four lines about praise. And this is very important because as I've said, these two psalms look at the world that we live in. They look at the world that we know so well and they see great injustice like we do. And, and they see great evil, like we do, and, and they see what appears to be a God who is absent, like we sometimes do. Again, to quote Larry Crabb, if left to our own way of thinking, every one of us would conclude that God either is bad or doesn't exist, that no God in this universe is good enough to be trusted with the things that matter most. To give you some context, he wrote these words shortly after his brother had been killed in an airplane crash, and he was struggling with this notion of where is God in the middle of all of this. But look what David says before he starts facing up to these really difficult questions. Look at what he says in these first two verses. He says four things that we need to draw our attention to. First, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Number two, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Number three, I will be glad and exult in you. And number four, I will sing praise to your name, almost high. These four statements, these four activities are critical for understanding the whole of Psalms 9 and 10. Because David is going to stare down the question, where is God? He's going to look that question face to face. And in these first two verses, he's going to show us the path through the darkness and through the despair, through the passage of doubt by saying the path through is these four things, praise, recounting God's wonderful deeds, joy in the Lord, and singing praise to his name. So I want to talk about these and want to spend some time here. First, he gives wholehearted praise in that very first line. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. The Hebrew verb has more of a sense of praise than mere gratitude. So I don't really like the translation thinks. It's not a bad translation. I just think we hear it and we think, oh, this means like when we give thanksgiving. But the underlying word here has more of this idea of praising. Or it even may carry the sense of confession. Not, not in repentance, but confessing that the one true God is God over all. In any case, what David is getting at is a turning toward the Lord. He's turning toward the Lord with his whole heart. 
I use this phrase that comes from the Puritan tradition, which is the affections. And I think it captures really well what we're talking about. When I talk about the affections, I'm not just talking about our emotions. I'm talking about everything in our blood, everything in our bones, everything about us as human beings. And what we see David doing here is saying, I will turn my affections to the Lord. One of the really important things we need to do as Christians to understand how to make it through this world is we need to learn how to stir our affections for the Lord. We need to learn how to stir our affections for the Lord. So, so this happens sometimes when we're singing or when we hear a beautiful piece of music or when we see a beautiful piece of art or we read a good book. It can lead us to praise C.S. Lewis had this experience. He writes this essay called Meditation in a Tool Shed. And in this tool shed, he sees this beam of sunlight coming through. And he talks about looking along that sunlight to see the real source of the light. And for him, that became a metaphor for the rest of his life of whether he was reading a book that caused his heart to sort of leap with joy or whether he was laughing with friends or whether he was having a good conversation or a good meal, he could see his affections being stirred for the Lord. And so we need to cultivate those practices. And I think these are all individual and different based on our dispositions. But we need to cultivate those practices that help us to stir our affections for the Lord. For some of us, it's as simple as a cup of coffee and watching the sunrise. Right? For others of us, it may be one of the many things I've already named. Another aspect of this that I want you to think about, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart is I want you to put this in terms of an act of protest, okay? We are in a world that often seems bleak and where God's presence sometimes seems absent, uh, absent where, where unspeakable tragedies occur. Turning to, the, to, to praise the Lord in spite of all of that is an act of protest against the darkness, against the powers and the principalities that we see in Ephesians, for example. It's an act of protest against the evil in the world. Now, I'll say more about this in a moment, but even what we're doing here, sitting here, listening to God's Word open, singing together, praying together, taking communion together, is an act of protest in a world that seems devoid of God's presence. I love the scene in Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan where, where Christian, that's the main character, and Hopeful, and they're traveling together, so it's an allegory. They have really basic names. Christian and Hopeful fall into the hands of giant despair. He locks them away in his castle, which is known as Doubting Castle, and many people have been lost there, and he starves them, and he beats them. And at the counsel of his wife, who is known as No Mercy, the giant urges Christian and Hopeful to take their own lives. He says, look at the situation you're in. You might as well get out of it now. You might as well end it. But after they're conversing, and Christian even says, maybe we should, maybe we should end it. After they're conversing, Hopeful reminds Christian about the true king, the king of the heavenly city where they're traveling to. Hopeful agrees that their situation is bleak and that, that their condition is terrible. But, he says, we must fix our eyes on the Lord of the heavenly city. 
We must fix our eyes on the Lord of the heavenly city. We can't take our life now. We have to keep looking forward to a future where we are in the city with our Lord. Then, Hopeful goes on to remind him of all of the times that the Lord has seen him through in the past. He goes on to remind him of the way he's been preserved against many enemies. And this leads us to David's second point here in the second line of verse 1. David says, I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I love this word recount because it has this idea of taking record of or taking inventory of what God has done. It is so critical for us to remember what the Lord has done. One of the benefits of reading Scripture is just that. As you read the entire story of Scripture again and again, especially in big chunks, not just small chunks or small pieces, but big chunks, you begin to see God's faithfulness exemplified time and time and time again. If you take stock of your own life, inventory of your own life, you can see where God has been faithful, even in some really difficult circumstances. In the Old Testament, one practice to remember the deeds of the Lord was to raise these large stones, stones of remembrance, Ebenezer's. They would raise them, these huge stones, pull them up and set them on the ground so that they would serve as a monument to the Lord's character and faithfulness for generations to come. But more important than physical objects is our own recollection of what God has done. As Christians, it's necessary to keep the gospel that Christ died for our sins, that Christ died to free us from sin, Satan, and death ever before us. Sometimes I think we have this notion that that's kind of like the entry point into Christianity and then we move on and we quit talking about it. But for Christians, the gospel is a daily practice that we must come back to every single day, repeating it to ourselves. We do this, by the way, every time we pray in the name of Jesus or in Jesus' name, because we're recognizing that in and of ourselves, we have no right to enter the Holy of Holies, to enter the throne room of God, and to petition Him in our own virtue. So when we close our prayer in Jesus' name, it's not some sort of magical incantation. It is a way of recognizing the gospel, the fact that we are able to say that prayer because of our position in Christ through his merits. We are approaching the throne of grace not through our merits, but through the merits of Christ who has done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. This is also why the Lord's Supper is so important. It's a tangible rehearsal of the gospel. And it's why it should be frequent. It's why, by all indication, in the New Testament, they practiced it every time they gathered. The Lord's Supper is a frequent reminder. We really can't do it too often. I've had people argue that it loses its meaning if you do it too frequently. You can't do it too frequently. You need the gospel to be, be in your head and in your mind every single day doesn't get old. It shouldn't get old. And if it starts to feel old, that's where we stir our affections with it. Number three, third thing David says is, I will be glad and exult in the Lord. Notice the joy and the gladness here. Again, we have to remember our affections. They need this daily stirring for the Lord. 
That famous question that I've quoted so many times before is once more helpful from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. We usually focus on that, but this next part we miss, and to enjoy Him, to enjoy Him forever, to take joy in Him forever. Here David speaks of being glad and taking joy in the Lord. One practical application of this is singing, which is David's fourth point. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. His joy in the Lord burst forth into songs of praise. In Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of singing as, um, as an aspect of being filled by the Holy Spirit. And for David here, as we get ready to go deeper into the psalm, the way through darkness and despair is by singing. Do you remember what Paul and Silas do when they're locked away in prison? They're praying and they're singing hymns to the Lord. This is why congregational singing is critical. Okay, and I would even go so far as to say it's not enough to simply listen. You have to engage in the singing. I love this illustration. I don't know where I got it from. Um, it's not mine, though. Um, Someone talked about a Christian congregation as coals on a fire. And if one coal is failing to be warm, it doesn't help the whole clump of coal. Well, that's so true in singing. When half of us are not engaging in stirring our affections with the Lord when we're here in a congregation, then that causes us all to be a little bit colder. What we need together is this aspect of congregational singing. It's critical. It's, it's foundational for a difficult world. When you leave these doors, you will be in a difficult world. And so what you're doing here today is deeply significant, especially if you're engaging in the singing and the listening to God's Word and the prayers and, and the communion. All of these things are preparation, formation, for as you enter the world once more. Now, on what basis can David start this psalm this way? And as you'll see, you'll see why I'm saying, look, he's starting this way. It doesn't make sense because he's going to ask this question, where is God? But on what basis can David do these four acts of praise? Well, verses 3 and 4 give us the answer. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Now, there's some debate about this, but David appears to be looking forward, even though he speaks as though this has already happened. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. He really seems to be looking forward to this idea of confidence that God is going to do what God promised to do all along. And it's on this basis, it's this basis, this confidence that God's going to set all things right that gives him a basis to sing praise, to recount the Lord's wonderful deeds, and it is the basis for the Christian hope. The whole basis of Christian hope is looking forward to the moment of consummate redemption in Christ. And we see David sort of telling us that here as he's singing and celebrating, and he's saying, look, God's going to set it right. He's going to establish me. He's going to sit me on the throne and give me righteous judgment. And the certainty of this redemption 
is in three things. First, the Lord's might. Second, his gracious character. And third, his action in raising Christ Jesus from the dead. Let me show you these in the passage. Look how we see his might or his sovereignty in verses 7 and 8. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Despite all appearances, the Lord is on his throne and every single nation on the planet belongs to him. David says it may not look like it, but it all belongs to him. It may not look like it, but Richmond belongs to King Jesus. It may not look like it, but America and every other nation on the planet belongs to King Jesus. We have not laid claim to him. He has laid claim to us. They belong to him. Such is his power. Such is his sovereignty. Such is his kingly freedom that his are the nations. And this psalm celebrates, secondly, the gracious character of the Lord. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Again in verse 12. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Not only is the Lord a sovereign and mighty king, he is a good king. He is a gracious king. We'll see the same declaration at the end of Psalm 10. The Lord is a good king and his justice will prevail. And then finally, there is, I know we're in the Psalms, but look, there is his action in raising Christ Jesus from the dead. We have a clear indication of that in verse 13. Verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. In this verse, we hear a voice greater than David's. In this verse, we hear the voice of the greater king, the greater David, the eternal king, Jesus Christ, the only one who would be able to say these words in all truth. Because David, as Jesus points, or as the apostles point out in the New Testament, is still lying in the grave in Acts. So this verse must be about someone else. And here we hear the voice of Christ Jesus. O you who lift me up from the gates of hell. David is speaking only as a shadow of what will happen, of the resurrection that will be won and secured by Christ. And this, this resurrection that Christ is not dead, he is alive, this is the basis for our hope. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, apart from the resurrection, we remain in our sins. But with the resurrection, we know what to expect. We know that when Christ returns, bodies will be raised. This is the Christian hope. And it's why so many Christian cemeteries, by the way, are positioned to the east. I don't know if you've ever been to an old church, but most of them have the, the headstones facing toward the east. And the idea behind this is this idea that Christ, when he returns, returns in the east. So they are giving a theological profession or confession of faith by situating their graveyard in such a way to say, we believe that Christ is not only returning, but when he does, this graveyard will burst forth with saints. 
what we do at Christian burials is deeply significant, even if it doesn't seem so. It's really an odd experience because at these funerals, they're very sad. We're obviously grieving. It seems on one hand that all hope is lost. But at a Christian funeral, we're doing something different. We often quote that scripture, right? We grieve, but not as those without hope. And why is that? Because when we lay the body to rest, we make this claim that we find in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body. We affirm that the body will be raised imperishable and immortal with Christ. It will be raised just as he himself has been raised. That's what we affirm at the funerals. Now, all of this talk about death does remind us of the problem that we started with, the problem before us. What about when God seems absent? Let's look at the opening of Psalm 10 in verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm is really a reflection on the problem of evil and the seeming absence of God. We can put it into our language. Where is God in the hurricane? Where is God in Afghanistan? Where is God in divorce, drug addiction, or terminal diagnosis? David looks at the world in verses 2 through 11, and he laments the state of the world. He laments those who would use their power to destroy and harm with no fear of God, which has been true of all of human history. And it happens every single day. Then David, after looking at this in verses 2 through 11, turns our attention to one of the practices at our disposal. He says it is prayer that offers us refuge for the present moment. He begins that prayer in verse 12, and it runs through verse 15. And what we see there as he's praying is the way Christians look at the world. The Christian view of things is expressed in biblical prayer. Our view of the world isn't blinding our eyes to suffering. It's not a matter of just changing our perspective and saying, well, really, we just need to see everything as a gift. It's not how we think about the world. We recognize and face head on the fact that the world is mired in suffering and brokenness, what we call sin. Nor is our view an unbridled optimism. Yeah, you get this in some Christian circles, but we don't look at the world and say, well, everything's fine. We just need to think positive thoughts. The Christian view is a realist position. It looks at the world and it takes a realistic view of the world. I like the uh, label applied to the great public theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who, by the way, lived through um, both world wars and and then, of course, into the Cold War era and and then made it, I think, just through the beginning of Vietnam, Uh, but lived through, obviously, these major monumental shifts in the world. And he was called, this label given to him by one of his students, a pessimistic optimist. A pessimistic optimist. See, Christians don't bank on human ingenuity to fix the ills of the world. It's not really our hope. We praise God for it. Right? The advancements of modern medicine are incredible. The advancements of technology are incredible. I love them. I'm preaching from an iPad. Right? All of this is wonderful stuff for us but yet it will not fix the ills of this world. We know sin runs too deep. And in that sense, we're pessimistic. But neither do Christians fall into this despairing pessimism because it is our faith that provides the answer. 
Because we believe God sits over all things and that Christ has already done what we could never do. God has acted in Christ. And therefore, it's possible for us to ascertain meaning in this world despite the evil of the world. We can therefore be pessimistic optimists. Niebuhr, in an essay on this very topic, pointed to Job 42 to illustrate this. In Job 42, we read, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This verse is all about mystery. Job recognizes that I was talking about things I didn't understand. I was trying to make sense out of things that I didn't understand. But even in the middle of that mystery, what Job learns is there is some ultimate meaning. That God is still present there. And the Psalms do this so well. Because the Psalms counsel us in holding the tension. Perhaps we might even say in holding the paradoxes, such as being pessimistic and optimistic. We believe in the complete power of God while also believing in His complete goodness. We recognize the real presence of evil while also recognizing the reality of judgment and grace. Psalm 23 is a really great illustration of this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then we find that even in the middle of that psalm, there are enemies somehow gathered at the table. There's this valley, this darkest of valley that we know is the valley of the shadow of death where, where we have to pass through. Right? All of that's there in one psalm. Christianity gives us this view of the world that says, look, it is broken, but there is hope because God has acted in Christ to put all the nations all the powers, all the principalities under His feet, and the resurrection is our future hope. Again, all of this is looking forward to the future, which is how Christians have always seen things, and that's precisely how Psalm 10 concludes. Look at the last three verses, beginning in verse 16. Psalm 10, verse 16. The Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from His land. O Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So the psalm began, remember, with where are you? But it ends with this ringing, resounding confidence that the Lord will put all things right. We read from... We read from Luke 1 this morning. Judy read it for us. That's a famous passage used in Christian liturgy. But it's all about God keeping His promises. And if you read that passage again, you'll see it. How did He keep His promise? He kept them through Christ. God's action in Christ is that decisive blow. We can call it D-Day. Because that wasn't when the war ended, but it was the decisive day. It's the decisive blow for sin, Satan, and evil. God's action in Christ is a certain victory over all the evil that runs rampant in our world. Every time we look at the night sky, as Psalm 8 showed us last week, we can remember how all things have been subjected to Christ. Every time we come to this table, which we do monthly, every time we take from the bread and the cup at the table, we've, uh, we are proclaiming the victory of Christ. And as I've said several times throughout this morning, even your attendance this morning at this service is deeply meaningful. 
It's not meaningful because you like the music or because you like the sermon or any of that. That's all just a consumeristic way of thinking about these things, right? What can I get out out of it? What makes it meaningful is that together we are affirming that Christ is King. And together as we sing and as we open Scripture and proclaim these truths that seem to fly in the face of everything we know about the world, we are witnessing to the presence of God in a world that often seems devoid of His presence. Just let that sink in for a moment. When you walk in these doors, it's not about what you're going to get out of it. It's about a witness to the evil, to the principalities, to the powers, to the brokenness of this world to say, yes, I know things look like they are completely hopeless, but in Christ there is hope. Suzanne is coming to lead us in our pastoral prayer this morning. And as she comes, I'll just extend an invitation to you as usual. This is the Christian hope that Christ died for us. We would love to share that hope with you and talk to you about what it means to live into that hope and to follow Him, to trust Him, to repent and believe as the Bible calls us to. You can catch some of the pastors out back or out front rather after the service will be out there. We would love to talk to you then. You can catch us throughout the week. The office will be closed tomorrow for Labor Day, but you can certainly send us an email or give us a phone call and we would love to talk with you. And, of course, if you're interested in joining our congregation uh, in partnership with what we do here at the church, then we would invite you to have that conversation with us as well. Uh, So anything you need, our staff is available, and we would love to have those conversations. Suzanne will lead us in prayer. Let us pray together. Oh, Lord, today we come rejoicing that we can enter this place and worship you, for this is your day. We thank you that you are always ready to hear our prayers, inviting us to be in your presence and pour out our needs. There is none like you. Forgive us when we allow trivial cares of the world to sway our focus away from you and onto things that don't matter. Help us to love one another in a way that mirrors your love for us and draws others to you. We are mindful today of those who are in the hospital, Marty Moore, Emmett Knoll. May your healing power be availed to them. We are thankful, Lord, that Brian and Ashley Jones are recovering at home with their children. We thank you, O Lord, that Scott Bartoff is safe from the attack on the USS Abraham Lincoln. We are keenly aware that others are suffering loss, Lord, loss of their homes and loved ones from Hurricane Ida, loss through illness and tragedy. Afford them the comfort and peace that only you can give, even beyond all that we can think or imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.